A young actor told me yesterday that she couldn't enjoy stand-up comedy by Robin Williams because it's full of 1980s references that she doesn't get. That seems fair, right? Shakespeare's plays are full of references that most of us can't be expected to know without research. There are words and phrases that are no longer in common use. Our big question today is, as theater makers, how do we handle that? What do we do? If, upon meeting someone new, that person said, My traffic is in sheets. When the kite builds, look to lesser linen. You might smile and nod, but you'd probably have no idea what they were talking about. Imagine your father saying to you, Son, you lack my rough passion shoots. Would you know that he is wondering whether or not he is actually your biological father? Probably not. There's a debate that's been going on in theater for some time now. Is it okay to translate Shakespeare from early modern English to something more easily understood by today's audiences? Is it necessary? Is it wrong to do it? How far should you go? change a word here and there, or rephrase things completely so they're easier to follow? There's no easy answer here. Luckily, today we have some help. We're going to tackle the topic of translating Shakespeare. From Michigan State University's Department of Theater, I'm Derek McNish, Assistant Professor and Director of the BFA Actor Training Program. This is Syllable of Recorded Time, where we put Shakespeare in context for today's audiences. This season, MSU is producing Twelfth Night, which runs from November 8th to November 17th, 2019. We also just completed a workshop production of The Winter's Tale at MSU's Abrams Planetarium and Michigan High Schools. Let me introduce our hosts today, Sydney Schneider and Caitlin Copenhaver. I'm Sydney Schneider, an actor in the BFA Acting Actor Training Program, and I played the roles of Atalicus, Amelia, and First Lady in The Winter's Tale. I'm Caitlin Copenhaver, also an actor in VFA training program, and I play the roles of Mamilius and the Shepherd in The Winter's Tale. We are here today with Dr. Daniel Smith, professor in MSU's Department of Theater, dramaturg, and resident expert on translation. Dr. Daniel T. Smith, Jr. is a professional dramaturg and theater historian with research interest in the 17th and 18th century French theater, history of sexuality, and translation studies. He earned his MFA from the University of Massachusetts in Amherst and a PhD from Northwestern University. He has taught at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Northwestern University, University of Illinois at Chicago, and the Theater School of DePaul University. His translations for stage include Don John, Love in Disguise, A Dangerous Lysison, and The Horrible Experiment. He has co-translated and directed The Serpent Lady. His annotated translation of The Imaginary Invalid was the basis for an adaptation published by Broadway Play Publishing. Dan has published articles, translations, and reviews in top theater journals. Dan is also a three-time Jeopardy! champion. Dan, welcome. May I call you Dan? Of course. Thank you for joining us. Before we talk about Shakespeare, can you tell us what was your favorite experience translating a play, and why was it your favorite? I think I would say uh, my work on Love in Disguise by Marivaux is my favorite translation, partly because I had a full rehearsal process as the translator. Um, in other situations, I have, uh, like with Serpent Lady, I translated or co-translated the play and then directed it, so I didn't have any kind of distance from it. And that was a fun process, too, um, but it didn't 
allow me to concentrate on the translation as much, um, the linguistic aspects of it. And so I think I am excited about um, that Love in Disguise because uh, because it was my thesis project at UMass and because I was able to yeah, see it through a rehearsal process without having other responsibilities besides you know, translating the play and making sure it worked. So some of the fun things about that were listening to actors work with the words in rehearsal and hearing, say, the princess uh, character um, stumble over a line. And then I could say, oh, I wrote a bad line, Margaret. Let me fix that for you. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Tell us more about your process for translating these plays. Do you have a philosophy for how you approach it? Any core beliefs? I would say um, one thing that really excites me about translation, I think my identity as a translator and also to some extent as a director, uh, is is in terms of theatrical style. Um, Marivaux is a very style-oriented playwright. He has a very particular style in the 18th century. Um, and so I think... Part of what always attracts me to a play is this idea of style, of theatrical style. So lately I've been translating um, Grand Guignol plays, which are horror plays from the beginning of the 20th century. And it's a very particular style that swings back and forth from kind of funny melodrama to horror, right? And so so I think I'm, I'm really interested in that question. Um, in terms of core beliefs, I guess I would say, you know, I took a class on translation theory and all of my ideas about how about what is important in translation were completely turned on their head because I thought going in that the idea was to be faithful to the original language and you have to define what faithful means, right? So anytime you are attempting a translation, there's going to be some level of sacrifice from the source culture into the target culture. Um, and I think, yeah, so that, so that was a big thing that I learned in this translation studies class a long time ago. When translating a play, you're taking it from one context to another, taking it from its original audience to one that may be very different. They have different values and different cultural backgrounds. When you're translating a play, do you focus more on the intended audience for the translation or the intent of the playwright? Well, hopefully you can balance those things, but I think um, my goal tends to be more for the intended audience uh, rather than the intent of the playwright. Um, I would say... Let me think of a couple of examples. So in my Don Juan translation, for instance, right, a lot of other translators translate the first line. Um, Scannarell says, um, there's nothing equal to tobacco. And lots of other translators translate that as there's nothing equal to snuff, um, which is how he would probably have been using tobacco in the 17th century. But I've chosen to translate that as tobacco because it leaves it more open for a director. So I've got different levels of audience that I'm thinking about, right? Like when I'm translating a play, I'm thinking about translating it for – it's going to be filtered through a production team, director, designers, actors before an audience sees it. So a lot of times what I'm thinking about is um, how to make that function for that production team, right, for those theater professionals, theater artists to – make some progress with the translation and be able to make choices so that I'm not necessarily making choices for them. Now, sometimes you do make choices for them, and Connie Congdon is a good example of this. Um, in her translation of The Misanthrope, which I directed here, um, 
she translates some of the speeches by Salomon, where Salomon is describing characters who are not present. Um, in Moliere, in the French, it's entirely descriptive. But what Connie does, that's really smart, is she gives Salomon some dialogue to say so, so that she can imitate those characters, which gives the actor a little bit something more meaty to grab onto, right? Um, so yeah, so I think there are, I would argue there are multiple audiences at any given time when you're translating a play, which is a little bit different from translating a novel or a poem. How do you deal with the references that just won't translate? Like outside of Michigan, people won't know what Myers is. So do you change the word to Walmart so people understand? Um, I That's a really interesting <laughs> question. I don't think I would change Meyer to Walmart because we also have Walmart in Michigan. So like, right, Walmart is a national corporation where Meyer is more of a local like Michigan, Indiana, maybe Illinois, uh, Midwestern, right, Great Lakes kind of corporation. So I don't know. I would, you would, if you wanted to translate regionally, I think in the U.S. I would just let it go, right? I think I would just say, well, people are going to understand from the context that Meyer is a place where you can buy groceries and also T-shirts, um, <laughs> where, like, if you were to take it to the U.K. and if you wanted to translate the whole context of the play um, – I don't know exactly what you would do, right? Would you then make that a Tesco or would you then, which doesn't quite, it's not quite the equivalent, right? A lot of times as a translator, you're looking for analogies. So you're looking for um, something that is equivalent in the target culture. Um, and But but sometimes too, right, it, it is just okay for the audience to not really get it, but you can figure out from context clues what's going on there. So, yeah. Now let's get into the big Shakespeare question. Simply put, in your opinion, does Shakespeare need to be translated? Why or why not? I would say that um, Shakespeare certainly does need to be translated into foreign languages if you're going to perform Shakespeare in uh, <laughs> France or China or Italy, right? And I think it's really interesting the plays that get um, to be popular in other cultures, like the most popular Shakespeare play in China. Do you know what it is? It's The Merchant of Venice because you can turn it into a communist um <laughs> plot, right? right? It's an anti-capitalist play, so it works for Chinese communist ideology. It's been the most popular play in China. Not the most popular play, but the most popular Shakespeare play in China since probably the early 20th century when they started translating Shakespeare's plays into Chinese. Um, in terms of translation into English, into contemporary English, again, I think I would say we're always translating, right? If you look at the mission statements of many Shakespeare companies, a lot of times what they're doing is saying, uh, like the Royal Shakespeare Company says, we bring people to Shakespeare, right? Shakespeare is this higher uh, cultural thing, and our job is to make people understand Shakespeare. So there's some level of translation happening no matter what. Um, I think, and if you look at, I know that you spoke, spoke with Gus Kaikanen on this podcast, and I haven't listened to that yet, so I don't know what he said, but I know that even though he's using the first folio, right, and believes that that is somehow the unadulterated um, text of Shakespeare, he's still making changes to it. Like, I've listened, to, I went and watched the run-through on Monday night, and 
for some reason, I don't understand why he's made this change, and I'd be interested in talking to him about it. Um, the Viola is from Messaline in Italy, which he's tra- he's changed it to Messina. Um, and I think it's because, I mean, I think, I think probably those things do refer to the same city, but Messina sounds more like an American interpretation of what that city is. It's confusing to me, though, right? And, and in the first scene, instead of... Um, Curio says, uh, will you go hunt, my lord? Or Sino responds, what? And Curio says, the heart. And we've changed that to deer in our production, which loses us the pun of heart, but makes it clearer to the audience that um, what 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 he's going to go hunting for, right? So again, right, you have this sacrifice in terms of translation. We've chosen to translate this word heart into deer for clarity for the audience, but then we lose some of the poetic resonance of he's talking about love, and so there's this pun on heart, H-A-R-T, versus heart, H-E-A-R-T. I think that is my answer to that question. <laughs> What companies are translating Shakespeare today and how are they approaching it and are they doing it well? So this is a really interesting moment to talk about Shakespeare and contemporary translation because the Oregon Shakespeare Festival had a program called Play on Shakespeare uh, that now is going to be its own entity, right? So um, the Hits Foundation has funded these translations uh, by contemporary playwrights in collaboration with dramaturgs to basically translate the entire canon of Shakespeare plays into contemporary English. And now Louis Douthat, who is the dramaturg in charge of this project, right, and kind of the vision behind it, um, had a number of rules for the translators about what they could do. So a lot of it was, you know, first do no harm, right? Leave well enough alone. If we can understand it, um, you know, don't just go changing, you know, just to make changes. Um, and then another one was the verse still needs to scan the same way. So if, if you're using meter, if Shakespeare's using meter, then the playwright also needs to use meter. And so anyway, there's a series of these rules that I think make it a really complicated and intriguing project. I was able to see a number of readings of these this summer um, including The Winter's Tale, um, I saw the last five of the readings. So they were doing them kind of in in chronological order of when Shakespeare wrote the plays. And so the challenge for me was that I wasn't as familiar with those five plays. I had also seen The Twelfth Night at Detroit Shakespeare Festival last fall. And that one uh, was really interesting for me because I know Twelfth Night pretty well. The ones this summer, I feel like I saw The Tempest and I was able to tell the kinds of changes that that translator Kenneth Cavender had been making. Um, But I also saw Pericles, Winner's Tale, Henry VIII, and Two Noble Kinsmen. So I don't know the original text. Like, I know the Winner's Tale okay, but but yeah, Henry VIII and Two Noble Kinsmen are not plays that are in my standard repertoire. So it was easier for me to tell the differences between... Right with the Twelfth Night and the Tempest because I know those plays better. So I think they're do. I think this is a really interesting project that is happening. The other kind of angle that people are coming at this from is um, the American Shakespeare uh, Company in Virginia has commissioned a number of adaptations. Right, because a lot of the f- pushback on this um, play on initiative was that, well, why are you using these playwrights to translate Shakespeare? Why aren't they creating new plays that are adaptations? So this other company that is really invested in Shakespeare and original practices, so that's another can of worms to talk about, but um, 
but in Stanton, Virginia, this company is very interested in uh, shared light and sort of all same gender casts and things that echo again, but that's already translation again, right? We're translating theater practices at that point. So I think I've talked for a long time about this. So um, hopefully we can uh, move on now and see where we're headed. So what is your take on punctuations? Editors already translate Shakespeare by adding modern grammar rules. They put periods, commas, and question marks where Shakespeare didn't have them. They changed spelling to fit modern rules. Is that translation? Yes. (laughs) I think so, right? I think that if we're looking at editing, I mean, I would call that editing, I guess, more so than translation. And that was kind of my impression when I first heard about this Oregon Shakespeare Festival project was I was thinking, it sounds more like what they're doing is artistic editing, right? It sounds more like what they're doing is coming up with a script that will work in production today and that makes some of the place more accessible. So we're always making choices that place that make the place more accessible to audiences. Um, when we did Love's Labor's Lost at UMass in 2000. Two, um, there was a line that was racist, right? There's a racist line in the play where Shakespeare's written, um, oh, it's something about the beloved and it's something about, she's comparing her to Juno and if Juno but an Ethiop were, right? So that if Juno were a woman from Ethiopia, were a black woman, she would be ugly according to Shakespeare's culture, right? And so that's not something we want to say now. Um, and, and certainly not, I mean, not in 2002, we didn't want to say it either. So um, so that we changed that to scan to uh, if Juno but a painted bod were, which is still kind of, um, you know, it, make, it, it, it makes it slut shaming instead of racism, which is uh, slightly better, I guess. <laughs> you spoke about original practices. We've learned that Shakespeare provides clues for actors in the text. The structure of the verse gives us hints about how to play how to play the character's emotions, even how to read the line. When adapting a play, how important is it to retain the original verse? I think that so many of Shakespeare's plays do interesting things with verse and prose and the challenge of understanding which characters are, you know, wealthy or um, upper class, they tend to speak in verse, and lower class and comic characters tend to speak in prose. And so to lose that verse and prose distinction would be a problem. Um, so I think the verse is certainly important, right? I think in terms of translation, like this is really interesting. The French playwrights of the 17th century are all writing in, for the most part, 12-syllable rhyming Alexandrian verse. And so when people translate Racine or Corneille or Moliere, they have to make a decision about how to render that verse in English. Um, Racine and Corneille are more famous for tragedy in France. So they tend to get translated not in rhyme because we perceive rhyme as comic in English. And so Moliere's plays, usually the other thing that happens is translators will translate them into iambic pentameter so that... um, because that's the more standard form in English and because because of Shakespeare and other playwrights of that period are writing in iambic pentameter, whereas Moliere's lines would have been 12 syllables in rhyme in French. Um, Richard Wilbur famously translated Moliere into rhyming iambic pentameter in English, and those tend to be the versions that people still use. 
so yes, verse in translation is a complicated problem, um, and I'm getting at it more by coming from French into English rather than Shakespeare, but that's my expertise, so there you go. For our production of The Winter's Tale, we made two cuts of the script. One was two hours and one was 60 minutes. It was hard. <laughs> we had a dramaturg, Taylor McPhail, helping us. First, what is a dramaturg? And second, how do they help in this situation? Well, a dramaturg, I like to use the <laughs> phrase information designer. Um, I think that's a helpful, quick way of saying it. Uh, but they're obviously like the... Literary Managers and Dramaturgs of the Americas is the big organization for dramaturgs, and they have a conference every year, and every year we talk about what is a dramaturg, because it, the role changes from show to show, and from production to production, and from uh, institution to institution, right? So an institutional dramaturg um, might have more of a record of the organization, um, but but typically what a dramaturg is doing is doing research for the production, helping to prepare a text for production, um, helping uh, designers and actors and directors understand the world of the play. Um, and so, yeah, in this situation, right, the dramaturg is going to be responsible for the cuts or, or deciding, uh, helping people understand why if you make this cut, we won't understand this. Or if you don't make this cut, then... Um, yeah, or we've we've already had this line repeated, right? So we don't need this much. We don't need Sir Toby to say um, this six times. He can say it twice and it'll be enough, right? Um, so I think, yeah, that sort of idea of trying to help the play work on stage. Um, again, right, I'm going to go back to French because um, the, the Moliere that I worked on, the misanthrope, we had a really interesting moment of, as a director, thinking about the original text in production, right? There was a line that the Eliant is a character in the play. At the end of the play, Alceste is saying to her, um, oh, I'm not good enough for you. I'm not good enough for you. I'm not good enough for you. And the way that Connie Congdon rendered this in English was, um, he says, I hope therefore you will not feel rejected. And Eliant comes back with, this is not the answer you expected. So that rhymes, right? Um, but then she's, she says, I'm going to marry your friend Philant, basically. And the actor playing Eliot was struggling with this line because Alcest is not actually proposing to her, but she's acting like he's proposing to her. And Eliot's response in the French is, you're right, you're not good enough for me. I'm going to marry your friend. Um, keep thinking that way, is what she says in the French. Um, and so... Anyway, so what Connie, the translator, had done is taken the action, right, and translated the action. And so we had to kind of go back to the French and figure out, like, where's the action? Oh, that's what's happening, right? And so that was a helpful, I think, again, right, this is my language skills and my skills as a dramaturg um, coming to help me, myself, as a director and the actor in that production. So, yeah. The Lion King, Ten Things I Hate About You, West Side Story, Forbidden Planet, She's the Man. What do those movies have in common? I, I think you're leading me to say they're all based on Shakespeare. But, of course, Shakespeare's plays are all adaptations as well. So, uh, But, yeah, right? I mean, these are primarily updates of Shakespeare plays, right? I mean, The Lion King is loosely based on Hamlet, Ten Things I Hate About You, right? We get in the title there, it echoes the taming of the shrew kind of phonetically. Um, West Side Story is an update of Romeo and Juliet uh, for New York. Forbidden Planet is 
loosely based on the Tempest, right? They go to another planet and there's a... Uh, and then, yeah, she's the Manus based on Twelfth Night. So there you go. Excellent little, yeah, Shakespeare adaptation trivia. What's the difference between translation and an ab- adaptation? This is another excellent question. And there's a great <laughs> book by Geraldine Brody called The Translator on Stage where she... Um, teases out some of the implications of these terms, and she adds the term version in there, too. So in her introductory chapter, she's talking about translation, adaptation, and version as words that are used to market um, plays, right, in translation in London. We don't do a whole lot of plays in translation in the United States, but in London they get somewhat more um, because they're closer to Europe. So, (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so I think... Translation and adaptation can be used to describe the same text, right? And there's a a playwright, David Ives, who has coined the term translaptation for what he's doing with um, a lot of, again, 17th and 18th century French plays. Um, His play The Liar is is a translaptation of Corneille's play, right? So it's a translation from the French, but he's also adapted it. And then his play The School for Lies is um, a, a, a... translation of the misanthrope, but it also is an adaptation in that it updates it uh, in terms of time. So there are a number of plays that toe this line, right, where a lot of times what's happening is the translation is from a different language, right? I mean, that that tends to be what we're saying is that if we're using the term translation, we're talking about linguistic translation. We're talking about translating from French to English or from Italian to English or that sort of thing, where... Or, yeah, from right, translating across time. I think this is why people are so fraught about this idea of translating Shakespeare is translating across time is not something we do as frequently. Um, we do, I mean, we do it, but, but we don't call it translation usually, uh, which is funny to me because, you know, Chaucer is writing about 100 years before Shakespeare and we do read Chaucer in translation. But I think, so yeah, so an adaptation, right, might take a stronger usually tends to mean that the translator has taken more liberties or the director has taken liberties, right? The There's a famous, again, misanthrope that uh, Robert Falls commissioned the translator Neil Bartlett to rewrite the play in Hollywood in the 1980s. So is that a translation? Is it an adaptation? It's, a, it's both, right? It's a translation that then is adapted into a particular time and space based on a director's concept. So... That's a lot of times what I'm thinking about. What do you think absolutely positively cannot be cut from The Winter's Tale? Ooh, The Winter's Tale. What cannot be cut? The statue. Um, exit pursued by a bear. <laughs> <laughs> and the probably the adultery or the non-adultery adultery plot. So I think, yeah, I would say those are kind of the core well, they're just the things that people know, right? And so when you're cutting, when you're thinking as a dramaturg about what an audience is expecting, um, you know, I think you think a lot about audience expectations and they're expecting to see Exit Pursued by a Bear. They're expecting to see, if anybody knows anything about The Winter's Tale, they know uh, Hermione is a statue at the end and she the statue comes to life, right? So people are waiting to see that. So I think those are the kinds of things you can't cut is what are people expecting to see? Um, yeah. All right, we have one last question for you. If you could have dinner with any character from The Winter's Tale, who would it be and why? Oh, 
I would have to say Paulina <laughs> because she knows all the gossip and she's a good planner and she would be able to tell you like what's good on the menu, right? Like you should try this here, right? I feel like she's the big expert on most matters in the play. So yeah, I'm going to have dinner with Paulina. Thank you so much for joining us, Dan. Is there anything you'd like to take this opportunity to plug? Any upcoming projects? I'm working on a book project called Dramaturgies of Translation at the moment. So I'm looking at Moliere and uh, Shakespeare and Chekhov and Roman comedy and Greek tragedy and trying to figure out, um, you know, how translation of style and how how a dramaturg, how a, how a pr- perspective of dramaturgy on translation is useful for translation for the stage. So, uh, yeah, look for that in probably two years. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Syllable of Recorded Time. For more information about this program and other exciting events, please visit Michigan State University's Department of Theater at theater.msu.edu. I am Derek McNish. Your hosts are Caitlin Copenhaver and Sydney Schneider. Our guest today was Dr. Daniel Smith. The music was composed by Mason Menzel. Our audio engineer was Daniel Trago. Thank you to Daniel Trago and to Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters for producing this podcast. 